Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles or your phones, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we are going to be talking this morning about uh, handle with care. We're going to find out that God says we need to be very careful about how we handle Christians and the church. And so we're going to dig into that. And I think um, I, I just cannot met, not mention just what a great week this has been. Has this been an amazing week? Uh, the, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. That is like amazing. Um, all of you who have been praying, what an incredible blessing. And uh, that sometimes people are confused about what that means. That does not mean that people can't get an abortion, which is tragic. We wish it didn't mean that. But what it does mean is that each state is going to regulate that. And so there are some states that have already like removed that as a legal option. And one of the things that is just shocking to me are as you listen to people talk about um, how this is an attack on womanhood. And I just think, how is it? First of all, we have a culture that cannot define what a woman is. And then secondly, the fact that what an insult to women to say that womanhood is being able to kill your baby. Uh, that, that is not part of womanhood. That is not part of what it means to be a woman, that you would kill your unborn child. And um, I was just thinking about, you know, the way that we look back on the end of World War II and we just say uh, the, the, the people who said Jews were not people and that it was okay to kill them in gas chambers the day that that was ended, what a wonderful time. We look back on that and we say, that is amazing. And uh, in, this, in this very country, when we looked at African Americans and said, you are not people, we look back on the day that that was ended. And we are just so thankful for that. And uh, this week is a similar thing. We look back on a nation that has defined unborn babies as not people and just killing babies in the womb. And uh, so this, uh, this has been a, a wonderful week and we're super thankful for that. And these, these kinds of things are worth dedicating our life and time to. And um, the thing is though that we need to remember is while that was amazing, you know, to, we look back in history labeling Jews as human beings that was a wonderful thing. Labeling, not labeling, but recognizing African-Americans as people. That was wonderful. And, and recognizing um, that, that unborn babies are human beings. While that's wonderful, apart from the gospel, that is meaningless. And, and it's, it's not meaningless in the sense that we should protect people made in God's image. But if we could stop abortion everywhere, but we forget that God has called us to the gospel, um, people just live, they'll live out a full life and they'll spend forever separated from God. And so while we do fight for human rights, we do not fight for human rights while forgetting why God put us here on this earth, which is to help people come to know who he is and to worship him. Like that's why we're here. And that's one of the things I love about pregnancy centers is that their commitment is to save lives. But they don't just save lives, 
they share the gospel. And that's what I'm so thankful for. And by the way, um, you know, we live in quite a state where we've decided, all right, there's going to be states in the United States where you can't have an abortion, so we'll pay your airfare and we'll give you a free abortion. We'll take the, the, the uh, people who live in California, we'll make them pay for it. So we have a state that is now going to recruit to continue executing unborn babies. Uh, what, a, what an incredible state we live in. And, um, and they are, they are uh, um, you know, there's threats of violence to pregnancy centers and churches. And uh, I just got to tell you, as I think about how horrifically our state is responding to that, um, I think what a privilege it is for you and me to live in California. There is no place that I would rather live. Man, this, is a, this place is a mission field. Uh, every, every time I have an opportunity to go and vote against these things, even though um, it seems sometimes that my vote never matters, I'm still very thankful that I get to go mark a ballot. Um, but more importantly, I live in a state uh, with people who are lost, people who vote for that. People who pursue um, destructive, ungodly things, people who do that are lost. And God put us here to reach them. And so I know there's a lot of people that just think, oh, California's terrible. I can't wait to get out. I think to myself, no, this is where I want to be because I want to talk to my neighbors. I want to be around people who don't know the Lord. And in some ways, we could become so committed to politics that we forget the gospel. And we need to remember that you can fix politics and that doesn't save anyone. But if you preach the gospel and if a person becomes a Christian with the Holy Spirit in their life, reading scripture, they always vote the way they're supposed to vote. Like as people grow and mature, as people approach life and think about life the way a Christian thinks about life. Um, So we could spend forever telling you who to vote for. Or we just encourage you to read your Bible and think about what God says about life and that other problem gets fixed. And so let's be thankful, but let's never forget why God put us here on earth. And this morning, we're gonna be seeing just an incredible passage. And uh, this is a wonderful passage talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, Uh, We're going to be looking at the fact that God says, if anybody destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. I mean, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and God God takes how you're treated personally. And then this passage just ends by talking about God's incredible goodness and the way that he's blessed us. And so um, what do you think? Shall we jump in there? Um, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, and it just says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What a powerful statement. You are God's temple and the Holy Spirit lives in you. That is an amazing thing. And by the way, <laughs> it's one of the reasons we read the whole Bible because there are so many wrong views about church and like have you ever I remember sharing the gospel with my friends when I worked construction and one time I asked this guy hey come to church with me he's like Raj no way would I ever come to church with you trust me you don't want me there 
if I walked through the door of the church, man, I'd be struck with a bolt of lightning. And people associated a church building, this friend of mine associated the church building with God's presence. But what we find out here is that we are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells inside of us. Now, this is an interesting thing because in scripture, the Bible tells us that you as an individual are God's temple. We're going to get to that in 1 Corinthians 6. So the Holy Spirit actually lives inside you. But did you know that that is not the emphasis of this verse? Like there's something here that is kind of amazing. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple? But that you is not singular. It is plural. So this is a unique emphasis that happens a few places in scripture. And what it's talking about is the corporate gathering of the church is God's temple. Um, Individually, we have the Holy Spirit in us. But uniquely, when the church gathers, when when people are together, we are all God's temple. Um, Corporately, we're God's temple. And that's, that's his emphasis here with the Corinthian church as he tells them that they are God's temple. And uh, I think about John 14, 6 through 17, God's promise of the Holy Spirit was for us individually, but also corporately. He just says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. 1 Corinthians 6 says we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and that we were bought. We don't even belong to ourselves. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 to 22, um, it's this idea of the corporate body of Christ. It says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Um, Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? What's one of the things that happened in the temple? By the way, this word for temple is not talking about the whole external temple building. It is specifically talking about the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. And what happened? Uh, Some of you guys are making the signs. I mean, you could yell it out. The curtain got torn, right? Okay, here's a bunch of people that read the Bible. They knew that. The the curtain got torn. It used to be the the high priest would once a year go into the temple and he would make sacrifices. And you've heard about all the Jewish traditions about how they would tie a rope on his leg in case he went in there sinfully. They could drag him out. And the Bible tells us that this holy temple is us and it's us as a corporate gathering it is not the building of the church it is the people of god now what that means is that as we think about god's temple and this emphasis in this passage is talking about the corporate gathering so you could say when we think about the church we should approach that with reverence last week talked about eli and his kids and if you went to your life groups I put a passage in there and I said, what passage did Eli's family fail to read? 
And then I, I listed a passage about Aaron and his sons. You know that God killing unholy priests, uh, Eli's kids was not the first time that happened. Um, Aaron's sons, right? Aaron's sons are priests. And they just go, God had given them very ins- uh, specific instructions in, in how to worship. And they just said, nah, I kind of don't want to really do what God says. I want to be creative. I want to worship in my own way. And they thought worship was about them. And so they offer strange fire, and fire comes out of the temple and just devours them. And here's the, here's the priority of reverence and worship for God. Because God actually goes to Aaron and Aaron's other sons, their brothers, and he says, you may not mourn. I just burned your kids. You may not mourn. You don't, you don't tear your clothes. You don't do anything to sense grief. Because for me, I will be treated as holy. He tells Aaron, you better care more about me and my holiness than your love for your own family members. Now, when you think about that intensity of holiness and reverence and worship for God, and then you think about the fact that God says the church corporately is God's temple. And then we'll emphasize this when we get to 1 Corinthians 6, but other believers are God's temple. You personally are God's temple. Um, how will that impact the way you think about living life? How does that impact the way you think about sin? You know, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about when we sin, we take the Holy Spirit with us. I mean, that is a shuddering, unbelievable thought if you've been reading the Old Testament and just how God's presence is discussed. And that brings a sense and a commitment to personal holiness, but it brings a sense and a commitment to how we have a reverence and how diligently and carefully we don't harm the church of God because we are God's temple and this is God's temple. And uh, man, that is just an incredible blessing. Here's the thing. Have you ever heard of people who say that speaking in tongues is the sign that you are filled with the Holy Spirit? You ever heard that? I told you some time ago that that is definitely not true. Um, there, are, there are some things uh, biblically that you can struggle with. You can read the Bible and, and, and there's things that are hard to understand. That is not hard to understand. It is absolutely false. And we know that because 1 Corinthians 12 says not everybody has the same spiritual gift. And so if everybody doesn't have the same spiritual gift, that cannot be a sign that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because every single Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is actually what makes you a Christian. Um, If you look at Romans 8, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now you'll notice here he's talking to this Christian church, and he's saying, You have the Holy Spirit in you. That is if you're a Christian. You're not flesh, you're of the Spirit. So, so what he, as he talks to this tr- Christian group, there is the recognition that not everybody who sets foot in church actually is a Christian. But look what he says here. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
So the, the idea theologically that you could be a Christian and then at some later date receive the Holy Spirit, completely false, absolutely wrong. The moment you become a Christian, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And did you know, like, uh, one of the things that Paul's going to tell the Corinthians is he's going to say this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He's talking to this church that's struggling, and he's already addressed the fact that some Christians struggle. But look what he says here. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So he's saying you need to test yourself. Do you know how you test to see if you're a Christian? Like as you read through scripture, you know what you look for? You look for evidence of the Holy Spirit. What are all the things that the Bible says happen when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life? And so you don't say, are there like these external things that people do? Do you go to church? Do you say a prayer? Do you read your Bible every day? Because guess what? There are tons of people who go to church. There are tons of people who pray. There are tons of people who read their Bible every day who are not Christians. And so we never look at external behavior. But when you read the book of 1 John... When you read through scripture at a description of what a Christian is like, Christians reflect that the Holy Spirit is in them. So what are some of those things? Well, one, it's a conviction about sin, right? Jesus said he's going to send the Holy Spirit that will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When you have a person that lives a sinful life, they intentionally disobey the things God says, and they don't feel guilty, they're not a Christian because the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. You remember David in the Old Testament? For a year, he's living in this amazing, tremendous sin, terrible sin. He's hiding it. But when you read the Psalms, he talks about what was going on inside. And he says, every day, your hand was heavy on me. My physical strength was drained. He was so overcome by the sin that he was in. So when people choose a sinful lifestyle and they're happy about it, that's not evidence that the Holy Spirit's in their life. Well, what about what we were reading in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians? The, Holy, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. But the spiritual person understands things. You know, sometimes people are bored in church. They're bored with the Bible. <laughs> Like you got these teenagers, junior high students, high school students, and it's like you want to read the Bible. They're like, no, I hate that. Please don't make me do that. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to study the Bible. It's, youth group's boring. Um, if I was right now to be delivering this whole sermon for however long I go, <laughs> and if I were to be speaking Swahili, how long do you think you could pay attention? Like, that'd be pretty boring, right? I mean, after a while, it's just like this sound. You have no idea what it means. And often, people think, oh, junior high and high school students or, or children, 
Uh, they're not interested in spiritual things. Let's give them video games. Let's, um, kids don't want to come to youth group, so, so let's not teach the Bible. Let's, let's get rid of that. They don't like that. Let's do these other fun things. Let's do some other things that they might be interested in. Instead of saying no, what they need is God's word, and we're going to teach God's word. And when somebody's not interested in God's word, that is a reflection that they don't have the Holy Spirit in their life. So if as you're raising your kids or you're talking to your spouse or you're hanging out with the other people in your life and they're uninterested in the Bible, they are uninterested in spiritual things, you should take a step back and say, okay, what does that communicate about them? Let me just ask you a question. If you are uninterested in spiritual things, what maybe does that communicate about you? See, one of the things I found is you'll take people who are Christians, who they're disobedient, they disobey God, and they quit going to church. Ah, they, they let other things take priority. And then they're spiritually harmed. But you'll take that person and you make them go to church, and they hear God's word taught, and they're around other Christians, and it's like somebody who's dying of thirst in the desert, and you finally give them a glass of water. And they're like, oh, that was so refreshing. And there's, man, I, I miss being in church. I, I need that. I want to be there. People that are not drawn to the gathering of the body of Christ, that communicates something about what's going on in their life spiritually. Like there are, when you read 1 John, all the things in 1 John, um, it says, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, you cannot love your brother whom you haven't seen, or you cannot love God whom you haven't seen. And sometimes we look at people who struggle to love brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and we just think, oh man, Christians, some Christians are really mean people. <laughs> Actually, some people who say they're Christians aren't Christians. And so one of the things is that if you don't have an affection and a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ who have been made in God's image, who have the Holy Spirit in them, what does that mean about your spiritual condition? Like as you read through scripture, we are not looking for behavior. We're looking for evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. Now, even if we have the Holy Spirit, we struggle with sin, right? This is one of the things I think is amazing. Yeah, First Corinthians, or Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 28, the apostle Paul struggled with sin too. So then we say, we take the next step, and it's like, yeah, we struggle with sin. We take the next step and say, so sin has nothing to say about whether or not you're a Christian. And we ignore verses like, if you love me, you'll obey me. We ignore all the things that God has put in Scripture to help us think about, do I have the Holy Spirit in my life? So number one, if you are a Christian, you are the temple of God. Corporately, we are the temple of God. And we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's pretty significant. Now look at verse 17. Here's the second thing we need to consider. Don't destroy God's temple. Like that kind of goes without saying, right? You know, sometimes people come graffiti at church. And have you ever seen that on the news where there's like a hate crime and they do something to a church building? And the world is like, oh, man, look what they did to the church. We need to take a step back. It's not the building. It's the people. 
And one of the things, like the Apostle Paul, he's talking to these Corinthians because they were having all kinds of internal conflict. There was division. There was divisiveness. And right after he's talking about all that, he says, you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is in you. And then he says this in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Man, that ought to get our attention. Um, Now, some people, there's kind of a struggle in this passage. It's like, okay, wait, is he talking to Christians or is he talking to non-Christians? Is God going to destroy a Christian who harms another Christian? Like, is that possible? Well, you know, I think about Eli in the Old Testament, right? Eli was given a position. He knew the Lord. Like, as you read this passage, I think Eli was a believer and his sons were not. And the Bible says that God disciplines the people whom he loves. So you think about Eli. Um, He just disregarded God. He did not treat God with holiness. And God physically took his life. The same day that his kids died, he died. And some people say, oh, that's a different God. That's the Old Testament God. You ever hear anybody say something like that? Um, When we get to God's goodness, we'll talk about another verse that says God doesn't change. But God doesn't change. How about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? They walk in the door. They've conspired to tell a lie. And Ananias walks up and he tells this lie. And uh, Peter says, hey, he, he, he says he gave money. He didn't really give. And, God, and Peter just says to him, hey, uh, that money was yours, right? You didn't have to give it. Um, even after you sold your property, you didn't have to give it. Like there's no requirement that you give it. You're going to stand in the, in the church. You're going to stand in the presence of believers. And you're going to lie. He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And he falls down dead. And people grab him and carry him out. And then several hours later, I was thinking about church services. <laughs> if you guys think I preach too long, <laughs> nobody thinks that. But um, uh, they were, their worship service was hours. Hours later, his wife walks in. Now, here's the thing. When he was home, talking to his wife, conspiring to do something wrong, she should have been saying, Ananias, dude, that's dumb. Don't do that. And when he came up with that plan, she should have said to him, if you're going to lie, you lie. And he might have told her, you have to lie too. She should have said to him, I don't disobey God. So you do whatever you're going to do. I would recommend you don't lie, but I'm not lying. And she should have showed up and told the truth, but she showed up and she lied too. You know what God did? Killed her too. So it's not just the Old Testament. God is holy. God disciplines the people that he loves. Um, I, in this passage also, this could be a reference to unbelievers. And maybe it's a reference to both. Maybe it's saying God's going to discipline believers who are disobedient and harm other believers and harm the church. And maybe, maybe Paul's speaking to the unbelievers in their midst and saying, you damage, you harm the church of God, God will destroy you. So this is, without a doubt, a warning. Um, you know, how do we know that this could be unbelievers? You know, the Bible talks about unbelievers in the church and their role in the church. Um, When God's giving instructions to elders, this is one of the things that he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness. You think there's ever been pastors or elders that felt like people in the church were against them? I mean, I have not experienced that yet at this church. Everybody's nice. They all, everybody loves me. You know, I keep waiting. I wonder when that will change. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> but you know what? There are probably some elders who have really struggled, who have really been attacked, who have really been hurt by people in the church. And, and in a sense, they can feel like, man, these people are my opponents. And sometimes we start looking at people in the church like they're our enemy. But look what it says here. You're supposed to be kind to everyone, able to teach. So we're supposed to be able to take people to God's word and show them things. We're supposed to patiently endure evil when somebody speaks against you or attacks you. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then it says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The reason that we are loving to people who cause problems in the church is because often the people causing problems in the church aren't Christians. And we're supposed to be gracious and gentle to them that God may grant them repentance that leads to life and a knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 26. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You ever think about that? There's people in the church. They say they're Christians. Been churches, they've been calling themselves Christians. They're teaching classes in churches. And they're actually people that, that Satan has trapped to do his will. You ever heard somebody say, man, I went to church and people were so rude. They were so mean. I had business dealings with a Christian and they stabbed me in the back and they robbed me. You ever hear anybody say something like that? You ever thought about the fact that maybe that person's actually not a Christian? Have you ever thought about the fact that Satan puts people in the church to be unkind, to be rude, to be unloving, intentionally to give God a bad name? You ever think about that? You know, church history. Think about all the atrocious things that have been done in the name of Christ. If you examine the doctrine of those Christians... There are certain groups we could say for 100% fact they are not Christians. And they've done these terribly evil things. And that's because Satan traps people to do as well. And it's not just in the people who believe wrong things. You know, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were those people. And they taught the Bible. They were religious. They were in the right religion. They were in the right church. And Jesus says of the Pharisees, if you follow them, they make you twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Interesting. Um, I would just say this. The church should be a very <laughs> dangerous place for an unbeliever to show up. You ever think about that? Satan's got his plants in the church. But what happens in the church? Well, I'll tell you what happens in healthy churches. In a healthy church, people grab the Bible, they open it up, and they read it. Think about that. Satan's unbelievers are sitting in a chair listening to God's word being read. What does the Bible tell us, tell us about God's word? It never returns void. It is sharp like a two-edged sword, piercing 
between the soul and the spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, God's word is powerful. And so you have these unbelievers trapped by Satan, and the more they're there, the more they hear God's word, and the more opportunity there is for them to actually get saved. How about this? These non-Christians go to church to create problems and to stir things up. And they sit next to people who look at them and they go, wow, that person's got a problem. They have a bad attitude. They're always complaining. Um, Whenever the church wants to do something, they subtly criticize. Oh, yeah, well, I don't know about that. And they're just there to kind of create problems and sow division. And as the genuine, mature believers see that, the very first thing they do is they start praying for them. I notice that person's always critical, always criticizing. The church says, hey, we should go do this. And they're always trying to distract and move some people away from that. And uh, as they do that, people, mature believers, see that. They notice it. They start praying. And then they start graciously coming alongside and saying, hey, you know, the Bible says that you should appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. You should appreciate them. You should be thankful for them. You should make their job easy because that's good for you. You ever read that verse? You ever thought about that? You know, in 1 Samuel, um, Saul, like, rebels against God. And God says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. So being rebellious against the authority is the same as worshiping Satan. And you just read that verse to that person and go, man, you're kind of rebellious, right? Have you ever thought about this? And as people pray for them and love them, man, sometimes that's actually how they get saved. Uh, What about teenagers rebelling against their parents? You know, appreciate those who diligently labor over you and have charge over you in the Lord. Man, everybody goes, oh, yeah, teenage rebellion. That's natural, normal, a regular part of teenage development. (laughs) Yeah, it's natural and normal for a non-Christian teenager. That's not natural and normal for a person who has the Holy Spirit in their life. And so, man, you think about the powerful influence of being in church, dangerous place for unbelievers. You want to know what I think is crazy? I think it's crazy that Christians... (laughs) sometimes go, oh, yeah, church is unimportant. I'd rather go to a football game than church. I'd rather go do this than church. And, and people who should be committed to fellowshipping in the body of Christ take themselves out. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's this sinful man, and Paul says, remove him from the church so that he could be destroyed. And hopefully as, as, his, as he's being destroyed because of his sin, God will save him. We know that guy ends up getting saved later. But Paul says it is a discipline and a punishment to remove somebody from fellowship. And there's tons of Christians that remove themselves. Why would anybody do that? And when you have a person in your life that you love and care about, and you have influence over them, and you're going to say, oh, yeah, church attendance, that's optional. Why would you do that? The worse off a person is you would do everything you could do to put them in the body of Christ where they hear God's word and where they could be influenced by other believers. And that Christian fellowship, that church should be so powerful and people should be very careful that they don't work against it, that they do nothing to harm or destroy the church. And that includes 
individual believers. Though that's not the emphasis of this passage. The emphasis of this passage is our corporate gathering. So what's destroying the temple? You know, I, I would say it's a failure to teach God's word. I had this Hebrew professor when I was in seminary, and he said, if you're too busy to teach the Bible, you are too busy. He says, sometimes people wrongly think that if they're too busy to teach the Bible, they are failing to help the church. And he just said to the whole class, he said, if you are too busy to teach the Bible, you need to get out of ministry. Because by failing to teach the Bible, you are not failing to help. You are hurting the church. One of the things that I think about, and this is a wonderful, incredible blessing and also an amazing tragedy, are the times I've gone to pastor's conferences and somebody at the pastor's conference became a Christian. That is amazing. A guy sitting here, he's under God's word, and he just realized he doesn't know the Lord. That happens to tons of people who have been going to church their whole life. They realize one day, I don't know the Lord. And you go away to a pastor's conference, and this pastor gets saved. That's happened to me like three times in the last 30 years that I've been at a pastor's conference, and somebody there became a Christian. That's an amazing thing. But what an incredible tragedy that the person who was chosen to lead the church doesn't even know the Lord. Like, think about that. We wonder why sometimes do we take things and we teach morality without teaching the gospel? Well, sometimes it's because the person teaching isn't a Christian. And we put them in places of spiritual leadership, and then we go, well, so-and-so says it's okay to just teach morality. I never hear them share the gospel, so it must be okay. When potentially... Satan has actually put that person in a leadership position. I've bumped into leaders whose commitment is not to share the gospel. Like they're not driven and motivated by that. And I just think, wow, every new Christian I meet, the very first thing they do is they alienate all their friends because they go start preaching the gospel. They're, they go try to force everybody to become a Christian. So how do you have a person who's spiritually mature that doesn't look at people and doesn't look at kids as needing the gospel and sharing the gospel with them? How is it that we have parents who are raising kids who care more about how they do in baseball than whether or not they demonstrate a love for God? Because evangelism is a natural byproduct of being a Christian. So um, my, one of my sons was in this religious organization, and they asked somebody to come present on sharing the gospel. And uh, this person was an amazing speaker, shared all kinds of really helpful, really good things. But as a part of a religious system, that's not Christian. Like they're in the category of Christian, but they're not actually Christians. And you think to yourself, how does a person who is not a Christian teach Christians how to share the gospel? It can't happen. Teach people how to have conversations. Teach people how to engage. Give people good advice on wise conversations. One of the things my kid said was, it was an amazing presentation, but you want to know what was missing from it? The gospel. 
was missing. I think about people who say, if you want your sins forgiven, say five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. So if you say Hail Mary, that makes God mad. That's idol worship. That's praying to somebody other than God. Nowhere in Scripture is that allowed. So you'll have a person that says, come here, and in order to be forgiven, sin and make God mad. And then say, three Our Fathers. What's the first thing Jesus said before he gave the Lord's Prayer? Do not use meaningless repetitions. So first, sin blatantly against God by saying a Hail Mary. Secondly, sinfully recite the Bible. Recite the Bible in a way that would make God mad. And if you do that, you can be forgiven. Um, God puts, or not God, but Satan puts people in a place to harm the church. And sometimes the gospel is missing from ministry because Satan has worked his people into those positions or Satan has trained people under somebody who promotes that. And so we need to make sure that we do nothing to destroy God's temple. That could be personally attacking people. It certainly is leaving the gospel out. It is being rebellious against authority. It is misleading other people. Now, we need to be very diligent and very careful not to do those things. Here's a third thing that we see is we see that God's wisdom is given to benefit his temple. God's wisdom is given to you and me. God is generously good. Look at what it says here in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Earthly wisdom is foolishness. You cast that off and you follow God's wisdom. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Um, James chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to shifting. That says God never changes, God is good, and everything that God gives is good. God's word, God's wisdom is an incredible gift. It is an incredible blessing, and we need to embrace it. It is amazing to me how often people will ignore what God's word says and grab the latest earthly wisdom. When you look at life, it's a result of its destruction is what follows. You know, God's wisdom is a gift to be diligently embraced. You know, we covered that in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It takes humility and reverence to learn from God's word. You know, faithful leaders, this is the amazing thing with this church, is that people are dividing up and they're having like, um, they're having like, uh, you know, disunity and fighting because this person's following this person and the other person's following that person. Another person's following this person. And you know what God says, like the solution to all that? He says this, verse 21, so let no one boast in men. 
For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You know, Paul just says every one of those people that you are lining up under and that you're saying I'm of this person and I'm of that person, those are all God's gifts. Everybody gifts people differently. Our leaders are not all the same. And instead of lining up, we need to say, you know, this person's really good at teaching me this. And this person's really good at encouraging me and teaching me this thing. And from this person, I learn and I'm challenged in this way. I mean, God's given us a bunch of different leaders, not to cause division, but because uniquely different people help us in different ways. I think about some of the preachers that I listen to and I'm intellectually challenged and I'm inspired and encouraged to obey. And then other people, it's like I listen to their preaching and and their preaching for the most part reminds me I need to be spirit-filled and I need to love people. And I'm so thankful for the different people that God gives. And instead of saying, I'm of this person and not that person, I need to say, these are all God's good gifts. And he's put them here to bless me and to encourage me. You know, um, everything is a gift from God. How about the world? Do you think about that? Then you walk outside, it's beautiful. God gave you this world as a good gift. You think about beauty, work, satisfaction, even struggles in the world. Those are God's gifts to us. Life. God's given you life to bring God glory. How about death? How's death a gift? You know, death is a great gift. The Apostle Paul looked forward to death. If you told Paul, hey, you're going to die, his response was not to say, oh, no, come cry for me. This is terrible. That's not what he says. He says, actually, I'd rather leave this world and be with God. But I also, I love being here because I want to encourage you and support you. Life is a gift that you can love and be used by God and live for his glory. Death is a gift because you model what it means to actually view life as it really is and to long to be in God's presence. Death has no sting. The present, the future. And then he wraps it up with this, which I just think is incredible. He says, you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. You know, think about that. God owns you. If you're a Christian, God owns you. You are his possession. He indwells you. That's why in Matthew chapter 25, he says, in that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And that you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Think about that. God looks at you and he says, you belong to me. You are mine. I will care for you. I will take care of you. It is an incredible privilege to belong to Jesus. The New Testament says we're slaves of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 says you do not belong to God you are, or to yourself. You are bought with a price. You belong to God. What an incredible blessing. Unless anybody think that's derogatory, it says Christ is God's. The fact that we are described in that way, in a parallel way to how God relates to Jesus. There's a sense in which that's how we relate to Jesus. And that is an amazing, incredible blessing. God is so good. He gives us wisdom. He gives us people. He gives us everything in this world. And he loves us. Man, that is spectacular. 
we need to recognize that. We need to live our lives with reverence for God. And I would just say this, if God is so good and generous and kind, aren't we supposed to be like him? Isn't that what happens when the Holy Spirit's in us? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for your goodness, for your love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. Lord, that we would love you, that we would be diligent, that we would embrace your wisdom. Lord, that we would be the kind of people that when Satan puts plants in the church or when Satan distracts believers, Lord, even when we are distracted and become tools in his hands, Lord, we pray that the the body of Christ would be powerful because it's focused on your word, that the body of Christ would be powerful because it's a reflection of your love. God, I pray that we would reflect your goodness in your name. Amen.